Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policy here at FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, and I'm super glad to welcome today in this FEPS Talks podcast, Professor Agnès Benassi-Queré. Uh, welcome. Hello. It's a pleasure to have you here, uh, Professor uh, at the Perry School of Economics and at Perry and Pantheon-Sorbonne. But besides that, you have been one of the uh, Professor of Economists mostly uh, influential and active in, uh, economic, in, in economic matters and current affairs, providing your expertise continuously in different capacities. And if I, if I look at uh, what, what, you, uh, what are your tasks at the moment, you are a member of the Haute Conseil de Stabilité Financière, a member of the General Board of Banque de France, a member of the Conseil de Prélèvement Obligatoire, and most importantly, we will come to this during this talk, a member of the Conseil National de Productivité, Research Fellow at Bruegel, Chesifo, uh, Isa, is an impressive uh, CV from your end, and we are especially grateful for your time today and look forward to your uh, inputs. The very first uh, question that we will address in this uh, podcast uh, will be uh, the EMU and then we will move perhaps on uh, uh, competitiveness, trying to understand what competitiveness means for European uh, countries and for Europe as a whole. On the economic and monetary union in particular, you have been very vocal uh, together with other uh, French uh, and German uh, economists on the need to push forward a very comprehensive uh, package. Uh, we thought that there was a window of opportunity with the Franco-German agreement uh, in Mesenberg. The Commission pro- put forward uh, their own, uh, their own uh, proposal. What do you make of the recent uh, changes in the EMU and how would you see actually the new commission engaging into this uh, very sensitive topic of reforming the rules of the European uh, economy? Well, maybe it's time to take maybe a a, a longer view about the reform of the EU area, coming back to Maastricht. I think in the Maastricht Treaty there was a a big flow, which was the uh, triple ban between uh, no monetization of the deficits, no bailout, and no debt restructuring. Well, it was not written, but it's an unwritten rule. And we see today that it is is an impossibility if there is such a a strong correlation between banks and sovereigns. This is one problem, because then we see that the central bank cannot play fully its role as a land of last resort without perhaps monetization, monetizing the deficits. So the, the line between liquidity and sovereignty is not so clear. And the other problem is the lack of inflation today. So the, the most elegant way to come out from uh, this uh, situation is through growth and inflation, and we have neither growth nor inflation. So this is the, the situation today. So a lot has been done uh, since uh, the start of the crisis. There is the monetary policy, there is the ESM, there is uh, the banking union, but this is unfinished work. 
and what still needs to be done, uh, well, banking union needs to be finished with the deposit insurance, for instance, and we need to break the borders of liquidity and, and capital, uh, bank capital between, between uh, countries. This is very important for stabilization and to, to, to break the doom loop between banks and sovereigns. We need to be uh, serious about uh, capital market union. This is a very, very big uh, project and it has to do with uh, uh, national bankruptcy rules and things like that. So it's very, very uh, important. The second uh, part is about fiscal issues and it has to do with the aggregate level and the country by country level. So maybe we will talk about uh, national fiscal rule and fiscal capacity. So these, then not much has been done. And I must say that uh, the small fiscal capacity that finally has been decided will not make a, a big difference. And finally, we have a, a third part which has not been uh, addressed much, which is about imbalances, productivity growth, competitiveness. And uh, so we have the European semester, which is uh, uh, very complicated, and uh, national policymakers don't really understand it. Certainly, they don't understand uh, the European semester, and we have also received uh, and we have seen a lot of complaint about the complexity of fiscal rules uh, as well. Uh, I think we, it is common knowledge that the, some of the fiscal rules uh, introduced with the Maastricht, the Maastricht Treaty, like the debt, uh, the debt to GDP ratio of 60% and the deficit to GDP ratio of 3%, have been more or less introduced uh, without a sound economic backing. Uh, so, plus we have a lot of uh, other rules uh, to try to interpret what is investment, what isn't. Uh, we have political room for interpreting uh, uh, the flexibility, the flexibility rules, uh, the investment clause. Um, how do you make it? Um, and, and, and how, what is your understanding about reforming or revising the fiscal rules? Do we need to keep the frame but simplifying it? Is it completely wrong to have a certain set of, of fiscal rules? Or where do you see the fiscal rules useful and where perhaps uh, you see that them as uh, less important? Okay, so some people argue that we don't need fiscal rules. Um, because the market will uh, do the job. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, it's not only in the new area that markets were misled uh, before the crisis. If you think of the Asian crisis in 97, uh, before the Asian crisis, there was a lot of enthusiasm about these uh, in the markets, about these economies, and suddenly uh, there was a sudden stop. So I think the market is not reliable fully, but we need it. Uh, we need a bit of uh, market discipline, but we also need uh, fiscal discipline for, from the governments. And uh, so I think we still need uh, fiscal rules. Now, the proposal of the 7 plus 7 report, the Franco-German report, which was published in uh, 2018, um, was about changing the rules into a spending rule. So the idea, uh, which is very simple, is to say that Expenditures, public expenditures should grow at a pace that is more or less uh, potential growth. So if uh, suddenly there is a crisis, then the spending will continue to grow at the, at the growth of, this, of, of, the, 
of GDP, of potential GDP. So then there will be a deficit, whatever the level of the deficit, it doesn't matter, as long as spending grows, not faster than potential growth. Potential growth. And um, so this is uh, more counter-cyclical also on the upside, because when you look at the performance of uh, national countries in terms of fiscal rules, uh, it's mostly on the upside that they were pro-cyclical. Like in 2000, there was a lot of expansion. So this would constrain uh, national governments in the upside and give them some leeway uh, in the downside. Of course, it's not so easy. You need to rely more on national uh, fiscal uh, councils that will define what is potential growth. But compared with today's rule, because in today's rule, you need to have first a measure of the output gap. So to have the measure of the output gap, you need to have potential growth, same. And then you need the elasticity of spending and taxation to, uh, to growth on the top of that. And this is also very unstable. So you have a lot of unknown uh, to uh, end up with an assessment of the fiscal stance. Whereas with just a, a spending rule, first it's more easy to explain that rule and uh, it's, it's easier to monitor because you have less unknown to assess um, fiscal policy. For a long time, have been, I have been advocating some um, fiscal uh, coordination across uh, countries. And I must say, I'm a bit disparate, disparate about that. It's a, a bit like monetary policy. There used to be a monetary policy coordination within the European monetary system, and it failed. It ended up with some big crisis. And then it was decided to move to uh, a common currency. And we are, in a sense, we are experimenting the same. And I think this will be for the next commission, for the new commission. Uh, the, the, we have a fiscal system, a European fiscal system with uh, complicated rules, and it doesn't work well. So maybe uh, it's time to simplify and give more leeway at national level and to have a layer which would be common to all the countries. So, of course, not a single budget. I'm not saying that at all. But uh, we have calculated that with a very thin layer, if you devote this to only counter-cyclical stabilization, uh, you, you can do a lot with a very small budget. The problem is, in good times, you should refrain from using it. And this is something the politicians find hard to understand, that you have a budget that you don't touch most of the time. So you have to save in, in good times in order to make it possible to, to have a counter-cyclical exactly. counter exactly. measure when needed. Yeah. Uh, one of the possibilities to you to use this uh, has been mentioned for the stability for stabilizing the european economy around the cycle uh, is the european unemployment benefit scheme but everybody is uh, everybody most of the north nordic and core um, countries of the eu are scared that this will transform into a sort of um, fixed transfer annual tra annual annual transfer but actually, the problem with uh, asymmetric shock or employment-related shock, globalization-related uh, shocks, 
are there uh, and actually are in the future, in the potential future of each uh, member of the, Euro mm -hmm. of, the, of the European Union. This is perhaps there are countries that are a little bit more at risk, but uh, it is a concern for everybody. So my feeling is that even though we have made some, some steps in order to make the European economy a little bit more resilient, uh, we are still not in a situation in which we can face the next, uh, the next crisis. Uh, the uh, framework that you put of uh, um, increasing room for uh, national action with a common European, uh, common European action is certainly, is certainly uh, appealing also politically, I think, because it's, uh, we, we, might, we might not find the balance that is too European. Uh, but uh, how do you see actually this little layer of, uh, of, of European uh, coordination on, on, fisc on fiscal matter? Uh, a very strong stabilization function uh, that perhaps redistribute, redistribute <coughs> within, across countries or a better measurement of the fiscal, uh, um, uh, the aggregate fiscal uh, stance uh, or uh, other, other ways. One, one of the criticism that we have uh, often listened was that during, during the moment of the crisis, this economic coordination at the level of the, Euro, of the Eurozone uh, was unable to make use of the fiscal space where actually it was, it was possible. So, um, which are the, the areas in which you see the European, uh, the European intervention on fiscal areas? Okay, perhaps there are three areas. First is asymmetric shocks across countries. Second is symmetric shocks. And third is the current situation with very, very low inflation, very low growth. I think we, we need to distinguish the three. For the first, asymmetric shocks, um, I think unemployment insurance is maybe the best tool. Why? Because it's very quick. It can be made uh, automatic, like when you have a big jump in the unemployment rate, you have uh, one year or two year uh, lump sum transfer and uh, with, which is targeted to the unemployed. And in the national country, in the, in the country that receives, you can use this money, for instance, to uh, expand for a few months the, the length of uh, unemployment insurance at the time where it's difficult to find a job. So there is little more hazard in that. And then after two years, it comes back to, to the initial level. We've seen that it works in, in the United States. There's no reason why not, it could not work in the, in the EU. So I think this can be done. Then the problem is if there are aggregate shocks or several countries making a large part of the EU or the EU area are being hit by the same shock and then if you don't have borrowing, a capacity to borrow, then it's not going to work. So this is where people start to be very worried uh, because it would need uh, a common borrowing. Um, I think these, uh, in fact, uh, these routes are easier than distributing uh, the fiscal stance across countries depending on whether there is uh, room for expansion because you are at European level, at national level, where you have a constituency, you have parliaments, and they will vote depending on, well, national interests, and you cannot blame them for, for doing that. So it has always been very difficult to explain that you, you could de depart 
from national interest. Whereas at the European level, well, it's like an insurance. So the countries are, are diverse and you rely on this diversity, like any insurance company, uh, to provide uh, some uh, macro insurance here. Uh, so I, I see, and on the top of that, this is something that could uh, appeal to the people, like the Erasmus uh, appeals to the students. This is something very concrete. Uh, we also need to to, to uh, show uh, that uh, the EU is delivering uh, at a social level. Now, uh, the situation today of low growth, low inflation, I think, uh, calls from something else. Uh, because this is not just a shock, it's a kind of semi-permanent uh, situation with lack of aggregate demand. And this is, for, this is why interest rates are so low. The ECB, in a sense, is the victim of the situation, not the, the source of the situation, but the victim, uh, because it has to maintain interest rates very low at negative level even. And this uh, is creating a lot of uh, uh, unhappiness in some countries. So um, this is quite toxic. And we have an opportunity today with very low interest rate, lower than uh, growth, land growth. And, uh, so the nominal interest rate is lower than the nominal growth rate in the EU area. So this, is, this should be the period to, to invest and borrow. So I, I think that uh, the, the elephant in the room is uh, climate change and to have a kind of uh, European initiative with uh, several pillars. One would be investment, and the EIB, for instance, European Investment Bank, could uh, uh, play a, a big role there. I think it's wiser um, to use national money to recapitalize the EIB than to ask each country individually to invest in climate change or in climate <laughs> mitigation. And um, But what we need, and this is a political decision, what we need is a credible path for the carbon price. And this is where people start to be unhappy because they think suddenly that uh, that uh, financial markets are going to fix the problem. It's not the case. Today, there is a lack of supply of projects, investment projects. Why? Because there is no carbon price. No, Well, there is a carbon price which is very low and no uh, credible path for an increase. So this is really crucial, and I think here we need to have a, 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 a synthetic view, a comprehensive view of uh, um, how to take this opportunity of low interest rates uh, to invest in this uh, uh, transition and uh, to change our societies. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned investment. Uh, you mentioned the need to uh, manage in a different way aggregate demand. You mentioned the need of a strategy for growth. And you mentioned as well the need of using inflation uh, to go out of this uh, perhaps obsession uh, with the public debt and mostly to go out uh, of the fears of stagnation uh, in Europe. So there is a broad, uh, there is a broad agenda that is also changing a little bit of the the, the approach uh, intellectually how I see it. So you actually see the engagement of the European institutions and uh, the public, the public, the public sector, very active uh, in using all economic tools to relaunch to relaunch the economy. Whereas uh, if we read at the current 
structure of some of the EMU rules, uh, it is uh, it is more it is more based on a sort of uh, uh, very limited approach of the state with very very few uh, very few uh, countercyclical uh, measures, with uh, the state very much engaged into securing uh, market uh, credi credibility uh, and uh, public finances in order. We need, we need to uh, actually go out a little bit of this, uh, reappropriating the space for, uh, for, the for the economic, for the economic uh, policy. One, one, what is the way in which we could perhaps uh, come back to uh, uh, a proper management of the, of the, aggregate, uh, of the aggregate demand? Uh, do you see any any potential change in this uh, in the in the in the near future? Because at the moment the structure of the of the EMU uh, itself, with a different type of uh, uh, adjustment that are that are there in the structure of the EMU, we can either adjust for asymmetric shock through um, could be uh, intra-EU mobility by shifting uh, some people, by having uh, facilitating the move of some unemployed from one country to the other, or with the other means that has been, uh, uh, that has impacted negatively on the well-being of people as well as on, on the internal demand with lowering wages or with internal, internal deflation. Do you see any room in the near future for a different management of this aggregate demand, which means perhaps also a different management of uh, wages in Europe and a different, a different management of the adjustment, automatic adjustment within the EMU. Okay, so um, first I think we should not uh, discard the uh, importance of um, the single market. Uh, to, for, for future growth and investment. So it's supply, but it's also demand. Um, you, so we are halfway uh, towards a full um, integration of the markets. Only halfway. So if you think that since the start of uh, European integration, uh, we have ripped something like 10%, this is our order of magnitude, of course, uh, something like 10% in terms of higher GDP per capita, thanks to European integration, uh, we are halfway, means that we still have 10% to go, which is enormous by today's standards of growth. Uh, so this is about a uh, single market of services, digital economy, and so on. So there's a, a full agenda there and a potential to, to, to increase the growth rate. Now, if I focus on uh, labor markets and wages and, uh, and aggregate demand, I think there is a, a tendency in the EU area to consider the EU area as in a gold standard. So we forget the fact that if wages increase everywhere in the EU area, then the, the euro will adjust, and that's it. You will get more inflation with a, a weaker currency, and that's it. So if we had a, a magic uh, stick, uh, we would... Uh, meet over the weekend and increase wages and prices everywhere by 10%. And relative price would not change, and this would inflate uh, the economies, of course. <laughs> the creditors would be very unhappy, <laughs> uh, the debtors would be very happy, but this would be a sort of tax, one-off tax on, uh, on uh, creditors. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we cannot do that of, uh, for sure. Uh, but the idea is that a competition between the different countries is good in terms of competition for higher productivity. So investment in R&D, in education, so on. This is very good for the EU area as a whole. But competition, to, if it is to cut wages everywhere, it's a race to the bottom. And it has a, it's a negative sum game because at, at the end you get deflation. And uh, the euro will appreciate, and that's it. So you, you don't improve the competitiveness vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the world, and you get deflation within the euro area. So countries with a lot of debt get e even more debt in terms of debt to GDP. So this is really a risk, and uh, so it, it has. To, so how to get out of this? Uh, we have the competitiveness, uh, national competitiveness uh, councils that have been put in place, but they are not connected one way with the other. So there's a possibility that each council says, oh, to, to the government, to the social partners, oh, you need to, to freeze wages for a few years because we need to recover competitiveness. But since if everyone is doing that, uh, we will, uh, the inflation for sure will not increase. And if inflation cannot increase, then the, the relative price adjustment will be more difficult. So this is really a risk we have today. And if I look at a country like Germany, um, the partners of Germany have addressed, have uh, insisted that Germany should uh, expand its uh, well. Uh, expand its uh, public expenditures, investments, reduce, reduce taxation, so have a more relaxed fiscal policy. And the German government reacted saying that well, the output gap is about zero in, in Germany, so there is no way of doing some fiscal expansion. It may change now because Germany is, uh, is uh, experimenting a big uh, drop in, uh, in GDP growth. But, and this was, but this was misconceived because most of the current account surplus in Germany comes from the corporate sector. And this is where firms have accumulated savings and they are not doing anything with the savings. They're not investing. So if a purchasing power is concentrated in the corporate sector, it means that maybe you could have some policies to shift part of this, this uh, savings to the households and the households may have ideas on how to spend it. Uh, so this will, would inflate aggregate demand, and it's about tax policy, it's about wage policies, and it's not true that the government has no impact whatsoever on wages. There are public wages, for instance, that could give a sign to, to the other. Uh, the hospitals, there are people that are, don't see their pay increase in hospitals, things like that. So, uh, and I have come to the point where we should maybe um, look at very simple rules, like the labor share should be constant, more or less. So it means that wages should grow at the same pace as productivity, full point, over the, so over the cycle, of course. Um, or credit growth should be about the same as GDP growth in an advanced economies where more finance may not be so useful. You, you would think that credit growth should, should be uh, 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 the same as a potential GDP growth. So very simple rules like that may help us because we have a monitoring of these imbalances uh, which is extremely complex and it doesn't work. It doesn't work and it puts emphasis on things that are maybe not so important. So we have the open semester that mixes up 
imbalances and long-term growth. Uh, so you repeat, for instance, to Italy every year that they need to improve their education or legal system, but it is a very long, <laughs> long list. <laughs> a, a long list, and it, it, it won't be, it won't happen in just a year. You need a monitoring window of say five years or whatever. Whereas you have short-term risks uh, that may be missed by the European semester because they are not uh, in the hands of. Uh, the Commission and, and the governments, like macroprudential, which is from the monitored by the ECB. So, for instance, I take France. Um, there is uh, so the, the macroprudential authorities have repeated, and the IMF also have repeated that the risk in France is corporate leverage that is going up. But this is not in the European semester. So, you see, if the if the objective is to avoid the next crisis we are looking at gender balance. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> you need to look at gender balance. This is uh, very important for growth. It's very important for itself. But um, if you want to avoid the next crisis, then you need to reduce, to streamline uh, the analysis to what matters really uh, to avoid the next crisis. I think that most of the things you just shared with us also come uh, partly from the experience uh, that you, that you had with the Conseil National de, de, de Productivité in, in France. So maybe my next question is also to uh, expand expand this further to try to ask uh, what is uh, what are the main takeaways that you have from the National Productivity Board uh, that you've been contributing. Uh, Perhaps what is the, recommend, the mm. recommendation for the French economy that made uh, that you are more, most proud of? And what is the first thing that you would like to see at the European level uh, in this network of increased uh, cooperation that you have uh, wished for uh, between national productivity boards? So uh, the report we've uh, published has uh, two parts, a part of productivity and a part on uh, competitiveness. On productivity, it was quite easy. Well, it's never easy, but it was quite easy in the sense that our starting point was to uh, think about productivity. So the productivity, productivity growth has been reduced in all countries. So what is really specific to France? Uh, so we've uh, outlined some points that are specific to France, especially the education system is not adapted to the new generations. Um, so th this was on productivity. But on competitiveness, it's like we couldn't really do the job because uh, a tendency of the French is to compare themselves to Germany, but then you're not going to give advice to the German side. So ideally, you would like to have a common report uh, with the Germans on how to why is it so that in Germany you accumulate current account surpluses? In France, I think France is now the only country in the new area with a current account deficit. So how can it continue like that? How to rebalance the two? Uh, so you have the productivity side. So productivity allows to have more competitiveness and more um, and more uh, purchasing power at the same time. So it's perfect, but it's very long and painful. Uh, and then, what do you do about wages? Ideally, you would like to have a, uh, to agree on a wage differential between the two countries for a while, but how to to, to engineer that? It, it's it's impossible. So, we would like to have some uh, 
some direct uh, discussions with at least the main uh, EU area countries to coordinate uh, our uh, recommendations. Do I, do I understand correctly that each country has a mandate to focus on, on increasing productivity, but if we leave, if each country focusing on competitiveness, we might arrive at a European or a Eurozone suboptimal, uh, suboptimal level. Therefore, we need a strong and uh, European action to understand what is competitiveness as a whole. Absolutely. So, as far as price competitiveness is concerned, uh, it depends on two things: productivity and wages, more or less. Or there are other things, but. Uh, um, so, if in the short and medium term, uh, productivity can be uh, can be uh, considered as given for a government, so you only have a capacity to affect, try to affect with the social partner, so it may work or not work, um, to affect uh, the, the wages. So you have the minimum wage, you have public wages. So there has some lev- levers uh, to try to monitor the growth rate of wages. And what, uh, what has been done in France in, in the recent years uh, is to cut uh, social contributions uh, for low-paid uh, jobs uh, and for not-so-low-paid jobs also. <laughs> and then uh, the risk, of course, is that wages increase and, and then the comp- it has no impact whatsoever on competitiveness. It's good for purchasing power, of course but it has no impact on competitiveness. So you have to, to draw a line between the two. So there is a risk that each country wants to get more jobs, uh, so more competitive, price competitiveness, and then you have a, a race to the bottom. Thanks a lot for uh, all the insights you share. I would conclude uh, with a, a little bit of perhaps of, wish, of wishful thinking. Uh, let's assume that you are also uh, that you are also uh, in advising the new leaders uh, in the in the field of economy uh, at the European level the, uh, the incoming commissioner Gentiloni on economy and Christine Lagarde that will uh, soon take office at the European Central Bank what would be the key recommendation for Lagarde and what would be your key recommendation for for Gentiloni mm. So I think they should um, not be um, too um, despaired. Look at the US. Uh, It took uh, several decades to achieve monetary union. Uh, So there were several tries and then it succeeded. So it will succeed at the end in the EU area. And uh, they should also uh, broaden uh, their area of thinking and maybe come back to some old ideas like the policy mix, monetary and fiscal, uh, which is something uh, out of date. Um, when you, you, you look at the, the, the recent textbooks about uh, economic policy, um, there's a separation between fiscal policy and monetary policy. And we thought in, in the Maastricht Treaty that we could easily separate the two with uh, monetary policy taking care of aggregate shocks and fiscal policy of idiosyncratic shocks. And it's not the case. It's not the case for different reasons. So we have to rethink about this relationship between monetary policy and fiscal policy while at the same time keeping an independent central bank. And I think this is a big challenge. If we can do this, it will be a big step forward. Thank you. 
thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FebsTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.